0: From WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, welcome. I'm Warren Odessa Gillette, and this is a Baha'i perspective. The Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues based on the principles of the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a pre-recorded interview with Mr. Ash Hartwell, a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts. Ash has traveled to many countries in Africa, including Egypt, Ghana, Uganda, and Malawi, applying learning principles to classroom, school, and community programs. Since he returned to the U.S. after working 25 years in Africa, He has served as an education advisor to USAID's Africa Bureau, as well as to UNICEF, CARE, and the World Bank. He has served on the Board of Trustees of the 21st Century Learning Initiative, a transnational program to synthesize the best of research and development into the nature of human learning and implications for education, work, and the development of communities worldwide. In 2002, he joined the faculty at the Center for International Education at the University of Massachusetts, where he focuses on learning in post-conflict situations, educational policy and planning, and alternative forms of education. He also continues as an advisor on education systems for the Global Learning Group of the Education Development Center, Inc. The stories that Ash has to tell are too many to capture in one hour. So I've segmented our interview into three parts. This first segment starts out with his family and individual background, and then his first experience outside of the country as one of the first contingent of Peace Corps volunteers. His assignment was to Ethiopia. Ash is a very animated interviewee, and getting him to keep in front of the mic was a challenge. Therefore, at times, you'll hear him fade in and out. But be patient, for he does eventually return to the microphone. I started the interview by asking Ash where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I had the uh, good fortune or otherwise of being born in Boston in the line in a hospital when my dad was a medical intern after medical school. But uh, our roots were in Hawaii and it took us, I was, I was born in 1940 and uh, uh, we, we started out for Hawaii but had to stop in California because of Pearl Harbor. At that time, you didn't fly so much. You had to take the ships. You know, it was still that time in history. And uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't move on because of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And we were held in California for about six months waiting to see what happened. And uh, after about six months, we went out there. And my dad, who went to work in a, uh, the Tripler Army Hospital, which was uh, where all the casualties from the Pacific went. Um, so I grew up in Hawaii. Uh, we lived uh, out in a place called Portlock, which is now multi-million dollar, really upscale houses. But then was uh, we lived across from a pig farm and about a half a mile from a tank camp. And the tanks, this is my boyhood. I mean, I don't know how I got into peace where I am now and, and goodwill towards men because... Uh, basically three times a week the tanks would come out into the water in front of our house. We were we were right on the we were right on the ocean. Um and uh, uh the tanks would roll out, out in front of our house and, and go for practice about three times a week and it was really noisy. My parents hated it and I just loved it. I thought that was really cool. Uh other things about Hawaii, we had to black out our windows because we never you know, there was the idea of curfews and so for a long time, uh, about t- towards the middle of the war. Um, and other things were like my dad was a, one of his classmates was in the air force. And uh, when they came to Hawaii, we, when they came back into, into port, we'd know about it because they'd have these uh, one engine fighter spitfires. They'd, they'd come down um, and, and they'd buzz our house and we'd know Charlie Arabino was in town and we could expect stakes. We couldn't get, we couldn't, Food was really tight during the war and um but but on the carriers and the and the, and the military had them. So he'd bring steaks to us and we know when Charlie Arabino buzzed our house with his squadron of Spitfires that we were in for a good meal <laughs> So anyway. But I uh, like I was I was was swimming and, and, and surfing as soon as I was walking and uh uh, went, to a, went to a school called uh, Hana Haoli, which, um, which was set up and run by a family who hired a woman who had completed her studies with Dewey, had worked in the States, but was half Hawaiian, uh, Louisa Palmer, who was a totally constructivist uh, in her philosophy, and Hana Haoli, which means work and play, and I think, actually, it was more play. You learn by becoming active and engaged in learning. It's not a matter of absorption. It's a matter of, um, of creating the world in your engagement with it. And in Hanaoli, how that turned out is when they interviewed teachers to see if they were going to be teachers. This is true. It's uh, seriously true. They'd say, um, they'd say how, how, comfort do you feel, how comfortable do you feel with the kids creating the curriculum? And if teachers could answer that coherently, or, or applicants, then they, they they had a chance. And every year, though, we did have a theme. There was some order in the school. It wasn't just chaos. There was a lot of order. But the kids created a lot of it. But um, uh, every year there was a theme. And, for example, in third grade it was the Hawaiians, and we built a Hawaiian village. We really did build a Hawaiian village. We went out, we had... Um, had a lot of influence from Hawaiians in the staff and, and in people who came to support. We learned about how that was done. We made the tapa cloth by pounding tapa, which is made out of a root of, a, of the same plant that uh, you get poi from. Uh, yeah, and you, you pound and pound and pound and pound and you get a cloth. <laughs> and then you dye it and you pound some more. <laughs> and uh, so, so the school was kind of the foundation of my philosophy about education, my practice of it, is that um, is that it needs to be really fun. It needs to be aesthetic and engaging and creative, and it's ultimately about the learner and not about the teacher. Yeah, so that's what the school was like, and it was. I mean, we just we did so many interesting things, and they can, that school continues to exist and continues to flourish uh, with the same set of beliefs. Of course, Louisa Palmer is long gone, but uh, her, her spirit lives on. But that was through primary, uh, primary grades. And then uh, I shifted into a high school, uh, a junior high school. And then I realized what school was. Uh, and that was kind of a shock. It took me a couple of years to recover from that. I was a really poor student for a while, really a rebellious poor student. I said, why are they doing it this way? But I got used to it finally. Um, but my real love was was uh, surfing. I, you know, the base of my, I think of my spiritual awareness, my my awe and respect and love in the world comes from. It comes from a lot of things. It comes from the wonderful people who are in schools like Hanalei, you know, and but it also comes from surfing. And as I uh, got a little older, bigger and bigger waves until finally I was surfing on 25, 20, 25 foot surf. And that, uh, that is such an is <laughs> such a, such a humbling experience on one hand. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be good enough to do it, but it, it, your goodness doesn't mean anything in the face of, of the experience of being on this, on these, on these waves. And, uh. And the, the the awe and humility that you feel in, in 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 the experience of going down the face of one of these, or or seeing one looming on the horizon and not knowing whether or not it's going to break before it gets to you, um, and uh, give you a very very long tough swim. <laughs> All of those things meant a lot. Although my uh, my father's family had lived in Hawaii for. Uh, three generations. Little diversion. I'm going to tell you something about my great grandfather because he really was quite a character, and I wish he was around now. We could, but he, he, I, 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 I describe him as one of the first Peace Corps volunteers in 1860s. Uh, he, after he went, uh, after he finished college, he went out to he. He, he went out and got involved in skirmishes that were going on in Missouri pre-Civil War and then went back east and joined the 55th Black Regiment. He joined the 55th, which I think most of the listeners will know that the 54th was the basis of the movie Glory. Um, and uh, my contention has always been they should have done the movie about the 55th because it, in fact, was more interesting and it got further. It went all the way to Florida. Um, and it happened that the, the officers in the black regiments were white and a lot of the challenge that they had was getting justice for the troops first during the war and then afterward. And, uh, my great grandfather's correspondence is, is, is very large, uh, trying to get the, uh, pensions and the, and the payments due to the, families, the widows of the, uh, of, of the of those. started out as a junior officer but all the seniors, all the white seniors were wiped out in the first skirmish in, in North Carolina um, in Honey Hill and, and he was left and he was then promoted uh, you know and, and, uh, and, and, and managed to stay alive. I do st- still have one of his hats that has a hole in it of a bullet that went right through it just above his head um, but, uh, but after this, he had, you know, he distinguished himself and the, and the 55th really did. They got commendations and so forth, but he then got an offer. He had he'd studied law and he got an offer, um, from Abraham Lincoln to go to become the legal advisor to King Kalakaua, Kalakau, sorry, King Kalakaua and the, uh, and the monarchy in Hawaii and, it seems that King Kalakaua had heard of the work of this regiment and wanted somebody who basically wasn't a racist. And he, he, he didn't know how to... And he, he did that, and it was kind of a... And my uh, great-grandfather said, great, and left. And he, uh, he stayed out in Hawaii the rest of his life, ended up as chief justice, and, and was involved in the very difficult colonial and post-colonial transitions when the monarchy had to basically, uh, uh, relinquish their power. And it was, he was an advisor to that and it was very, very difficult. Uh, uh but he, uh, he, he loved the islands and so that's how we, that's how, that, that was our roots. That was in my blood and still is. I, you know, although originally, I mean, the family was from New England, I, uh, Oh, man. Hawaii is, Hawaii is okay. But I had too many relatives, though, <laughs> when I left. I, after, and, uh, I, I I couldn't actually work out there. But my family also, part of because they're long, the background tradition of being in New England, said that either I go out on the streets and fend for myself or I go to New England for college. And that was really tough. I mean, I, I was making boards. I was doing well on the beach, and uh, I thought that would be okay. But uh, so instead, I uh, I had to go back east, and I had to find a place, you know, that met both of my parents' expectations and mine. And I settled up for a small college up in uh, New Hampshire, which uh, does a lot of skiing. And I figured skiing was going to be, you know, my my surrogate major, um, and it was. And it was, uh, although I found, and this is how I got into education, that I couldn't afford it, and so I had to start teaching it, and I started teaching skiing, actually, the first year I was there. Uh, we had a, Dartmouth had a good ski school, and I got inducted and, and trained to be a teacher of beginners right away, and, and uh, well, for four years, I did uh, taught skiing uh, as a part of other things that I did there. <laughs> Can't describe to you the pain and the suffering that I went through that first year in being away from Hawaii. Um, And it wasn't just the surf, it was just the whole culture and ambience. I mean, it seems to me in retrospect that I was too harsh on New England, but uh, I found New England materialistic and cold. And in fact, and racist. Um, And that sounds strange, but my two roommates who were dear friends, uh, who became dear friends and, and, and um, with all good intent sat me down after two weeks and went through the yearbook and told me who were, who were people who were not wasps, which I didn't, hello, wh- so what? Now in Hawaii, which is so multicultural, multi-ethnic, there are definitely frictions between the Haolees, between the kama'ainas, the, the old-timers and the new-timers, the malahinis. If you go to Hawaii, you're a malahini, uh, you know, because you're kind of a newcomer. But also the, the Chinese and the Japanese and the, Hawaii, the the Hawaiians. Most of the Hawaiians were wiped out by smallpox and other diseases, 90 percent, in the um, late 1800s, 1900s. But those that were left, uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the kama'ainas, um, there were definitely frictions and jokes and all. But, you know, people really lived and accepted together. There was no question of, you know, uh, a white neighborhood. It didn't, that concept didn't exist. It was an integrated, yeah. So while there were, you know, jokes and all that, the idea that you wouldn't actually associate with somebody because of their ethnicity or their race or something was just, I mean... Well, pretty much foreign, you know, and all my, my friend, my, the group that I hung out with was, you know, ran the, <laughs> the whole Chinese, Japanese, Hawaiian, you know, and we didn't even think about that. I mean, it wasn't, so when I got this message, it really, um, mildly pissed me off, uh, okay, and, uh, it made, and, and then to, there there was a, a sense that, You went to people's houses on invitation. There there was a whole different sense of things. Um, It seemed to be much more formal and cold. I've learned that that's really not the case. I mean, we couldn't have more wonderful, better neighbors and friends than we have right here in in Amherst. But but the first shock of this uh, with everything else, I I describe it, and it was what is called a culture shock. When you go into a new culture, uh, there are a lot of things that at first you think are kind of exotic and interesting but after a while they begin to really irritate you <laughs> people don't quite maybe show up on time or you don't understand what they're saying because of the way they're saying it or you have to dress in certain ways or if you don't people look at you a little odd and all of those things accumulate to give you an increasing level of, of subconscious irritation which breaks out in sometimes certain levels of depression and other things called culture shock and I had, after the culture shock between Hawaii and New Hampshire, uh, everything else in my life has been easy. <laughs> it's been real. From Dartmouth, yeah, um, a whole lot of things in my undergraduate program. I really loved the, I loved what I was studying there. The literature, The ph- I did literature and philosophy, did pre-med for a couple of years and came to a really odd conclusion. My father, being a doctor, a heart specialist, really wanted me to be in in um, medical school and, and, and become a doctor. But I came to a conclusion somewhere about the end of my sophomore year that in the world at large, medicine was very important, but most of it had to do with curing people who had already acquired an illness or a disease, and that we should be focusing on how to prevent that rather than curing it after it. And it seemed to me most of medicine was about how to fix a problem after the problem occurred, rather than addressing the problem itself. And that led me into um, really wanting to do something in the world that prevented not just the problem of health, but health and well-being and, and learning and education and so forth. And so, although I stayed in philosophy and literature, I, my, I was drawn towards teaching and learning. And uh, so I went to Ethiopia after I finished Dartmouth. I, I, I joined the Peace Corps as it started. I was actually the second. Of, well, another contingent had gone to Ghana about six months before I went. And uh, my wife had gone to Ethiopia just before I had, so I didn't know that then. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, um, I, I, and Ethiopia sounded perfect. It sounded really exotic and remote and different. And I thought, okay, let's do that. And um, had a really good intensive language program of learning Amharic, uh, organized by a man named Kurt Leslo, who was then the world expert on the expert on the semantics of Amharic. And it turned out Wolf was was uh, it was Wolf was his nickname actually Wolf Leslo <laughs> was. Um, probably a fabulous linguist and not that great a teacher. Um, but the good news was that he had Ethiopian assistance, and it was after, after hours that we learned our Amharic, not so much from the grammatical of, of, of Wolf, <laughs> which goes back to the point that sometimes those who are the best teachers are not that far from where you are and can help you along the way. Um, but I, as it turns out, was posted in Ethiopia. By the way, the, the training program at that time was basically really good. We went in, they got kind of international experts on the culture, the language, the history, the, 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 the political economic scene uh, for the country. And we had an intense period first at UCLA and then in, um, in Addis Ababa. But I was posted to, I was an experiment actually. Uh, I was posted to a remote area of the country. And, I mean, you think Ethiopia itself is remote. Well, I was posted to remote Ethiopia to a place, if any listener cares to look up, Alubabor province and the town of Gore, G-O-R-E. Um, it was in the southwest of the country, about 70 miles from the border of Sudan at the top of um, the east The eastern uh, side of Ethiopia is marked by an escarpment that drops down to the Sudan. It's about, 3,000 feet um, higher in place. Um, There's a major, the waterfall that um, comes from the Blue Nile, which is um, Lake Tisizet up in Ethiopia, falls down this and... Into the Sudan and joins the White Nile, which has come up from Lake Victoria, and it adds a lot of the the, um, the volume and the and the and the uh, force of the river, uh, um, you know, in, in the in the Sudan, and that makes the the Nile a pretty um, uh, It has rapids there um, that, that that lead then um, up to Khartoum and and north, um, so. Uh, Ethiopia is up on this plateau, which is, and this is a, a serious plateau. Addis Ababa is over 9,000 feet. Uh, the, the town I was at was only at about 6,000, and that was a lowland. So it's, uh, it's really up there, and it's one of the reasons that there's been fundamentally almost no communication with the rest of Africa from Ethiopia. Ethiopia is an isolated kingdom. And uh, they even are not sure today how, how much a part of sub-Saharan Africa they are. Uh, it's, um, um, but Gori was only reachable by C-47 cargo planes, which are the old uh, DC-3s with no seats in them. And, uh, and that came once a week, sometimes, if the weather was good. And its cargo was typically uh, goats and coffee, I mean, and a few passengers. It's one of the, according to the people of that region, one of the areas, indigenous areas for, for coffee. They believe coffee began. It's part of the creation legend that coffee began in this area. And... So, every year, they have the coffee harvest and the coffee uh drying in the town, and the whole town has got this wonderful coffee aroma because it's laid out on the mats all over the town and on the stands so and then there are these there are trucks that make it there, and the the height of the of the truck tires is like ten feet these huge they're not they're like they're like land land demons or something they're they're huge uh, tires and things and they can they can get out there so they come out and pick up the coffee and people get wealthy for a few months and (laughs) then go back and this town was a a, was an artifact of a of a of of an earlier age when um, people could not reach Addis Ababa by rail as they could after the 1920s um, a, a railway was built uh, from the Red Sea into Addis Ababa, but um, this town sprung up as a tra- on the trade route from the Sudan and the Nile up up this escarpment and into Addis that way, and so it had some kind of ancient buildings that were uh, in you know decrepit mostly. But I actually ended up renting one of these for a dollar a month and setting up a student <laughs> hostel. <laughs> <laughs> so that was um, the, the kids. This was the only school in the whole uh, province of Alubabor at that time um, that had um, there were some primary schools, but this was the only s- secondary school. And uh, kids would walk 30, 40 miles to come to school. Now, obviously not daily. Um, and then they'd have to find a place to stay. And uh, they could maybe stay with distant relatives or 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 pay some rent and stay with people often in exchange for work. They were often exploited, sometimes abused. Um, quite a number of them stayed in what we call what was called the Tejbet. And that's bet in Amharic means a house. and Tej is the local brew. So it was a bar, essentially. And they'd stay in the bar. That wasn't good for them, obviously. Um, in fact, I was really kind of stymied in one class that I had right after lunch, after the kids came back uh, from their lunch break, because they'd be drunk—half of them. Mm. Uh, I mean, a good number. Because Tedge was the cheapest thing you could get for nutritional. I mean, it was—it was made out of a lot of Grain or- grains and and. And it looked like twigs and so on. So it was it it had a nutritional base as well, but it wasn't really good for studying. So so we'd have to go run around the courtyard a couple of times before we could actually do much in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they came to me and said, why don't we you know, there's this place that um, the southern Sudan mission, which was an evangelical group of of um, Presbyterian, well was it was a it was an evangelical group had tried to buy over an old banking estate um, and then had been run out of town by the Coptic Christian establishment because they were too evangelical. And uh, so this place was wine idle and uh, it had buildings and it looked like it had a place we could have a small farm garden. And um, so I went to Addison. I, I was able to rent this from them for a dollar. Mm-hmm. To have a student hostel, and mm-hmm. so uh, we had about twenty-five students who um, worked together to rehabilitate this place and mm-hmm. uh, do a small garden, and, and uh, so we we had a hostel, mm-hmm. and uh, that, was, uh, that was fun. So
0: your primary mission was to to teach secondary school,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, this was kind of strange. Uh, Ethiopia under Haile Selassie in the uh, in the 60s Haile Selassie was although very traditional on one hand he was very progressive and I believe one of the, a real statesman and a, and a very wise and wonderful man and uh, he really wanted to modernize the country and saw education as being fundamental to that the country was really living in terms of its Economy, its politics, its religion—somewhere in the pre-Renaissance Middle Ages, mm-hmm. um, uh, about eighty percent of the land was controlled by the church. Um, it was, uh, which operated in a language which nobody except the clergy understood, uh, had immense power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and power was very much concentrated in the hands of the Amharian in in, in few, and uh, it was impossible to talk about agricultural reform without looking at land reform, and that involved the whole structure of things. And so, the idea of the education uh, system was uh, they brought in quite a lot, a uh, high number of contract Indian teachers. Um, but also when the Peace Corps started thought that's the way to get teachers and by the time I left Ethiopia after three years, they had um, they had over 1200 teachers in the schools, which doesn't sound like much but but was almost half the total teaching staff in the secondary schools mm. were American Peace Corps volunteers and here's the thing about that the volunteers myself included were full of Enthusiasm about the world and democracy and voices and, and rights and uh, critical thought and dialogue. Of These students went on to university. And in the university, they met and became much more aware of the structures and the conditions in the country. And nobody's written a book about this, but here's an opportunity for uh, somebody who knows something about Ethiopia. <laughs> but the revolution in Ethiopia started in the universities. Oh, really? And I don't think you have to look very far to understand why. The students became increasingly dissatisfied with their both their future prospects in the, in the overall scheme of things as well as the way the university was run and mm. managed. And... Mm-hmm. and uh, that being said, I think some of the most enlightened and progressive of the Ethiopians, uh, the vice chancellor of the university, was a wonderful man. But, but this this was just a huge sea change, and right. uh, and led I think finally mm. to what ended up as a is a radical Marxist r- uh, revolution. Mm. Um, mm. And I think it was really the dam bursting in terms of the frustrations. Of a of a country that was living in the 14th century and and also in the in the 20th, mm. and, uh, mm. um, that those forces just clashed and, mm. and and the country's still working it out. You know. Yeah. All that being said, uh, I loved it out where I was. I was kind of out of the mainstream. Had a horse, you know, and went around. The thing was, no, they hadn't seen a Mazungu, a white man, for who knows, since the twenties and those who could remember that. And so when I rode out on my horse, it was, here comes a doctor. People look and say, oh, here comes a, a doctor. And so that was, that was awkward. And a large proportion of the population suffered from filariasis, elephantiasis, the, where mm-hmm. legs swell because of uh, um, a, a, a disease called filariasis and um, and uh sickness was just endemic i mean it, mm. it was worms uh we finally got a health person into the village and and checked the worm level of the of the students mm. and virtually all of them had uh, hookworm right. and, and other things so mm. there was huge health issues there mm. uh, yeah you know? and people would ask me for you know cures and I did consider at one point, uh, you know, <laughs> pretending I was a doctor, thinking that might be a good idea, you know, doing potions and things. But I, I didn't do that. Mm. I did sometimes dispense aspirin, but that's as far as I got. <laughs> you
0: know. Yeah. That was Ethiopia. Yeah. You stayed there for how long? Four years?
1: Well, no, three. Uh, three. I stayed on for... Um,
0: so that was a Peace Corps term? Well, oh. no, two years. But um,
1: as I said, many of the teachers... Uh, that high, that the Ethiopia brought in were Indian, mm-hmm. and in the secondary school, all of the teachers except the Amharic teacher were Indian, um, and there were five of them. And the headmaster was an Indian, and his he, he was his wife. He was from Goa, and it seemed that a terrible dispute of uncertain origin arose between the head teacher and everybody else. Mm. They just couldn't stand him, and. One of the teachers was a Sikh, uh, Mr. Singh, and he—he uh, he was a very slight, lovely man. I became very close friends with he and his wife and their child. They had a girl, um, and he seemed to be the mildest mannered person in the world. But the headmaster got it into his head uh, that that his life was at stake, and he was he was being threatened. I, whether there was any truth to this, I have no idea. I never got to the bottom of it. But one day, the head teacher kicked up with his wife and, and left. They just didn't announce it. They were just gone. And we said, What happened? We learned that he had taken a flight out that week. And, and so then we looked around, Now what? And um, they determined that they wanted a head teacher who was going to be absolutely non threatening. Uh, and, and they chose me. <laughs> just uh, I mean, it was really odd i was uh, just it's kind of like okay why not mm, mm-hmm. you know, so so but then i agreed to stay on until we could get a replacement and um, they did get an ethiopian to replace me who was actually a graduate of the agriculture school and hadn't had teacher training but i stayed over to overlap with him mm-hmm. for about four months um, mm-hmm. and it was good because he wanted to keep up the hostel and the And the farm, the garden, and so forth. It was with that. Mm -hmm. But um, so I stayed three years. Um, One of the things I did one of the summers was to help run a teacher training institute for new people coming in Mm -hmm. to teaching. And uh, met Trish out there. That was in Diradawa, which is the far west of the country, near Somalia. And our first date was a trip over to the ancient city of Harar. Uh, which became famous to those who were interested in, in, in Victorian literature and Richard Burton's travels and the uh, Forbidden City of Harar because mm-hmm. he disguised himself as an Arab and lived there for a year uh, mm-hmm. and wrote a book about it. Mm. And so it was called The Forbidden City of Harar. So we thought that would be cool to go over to the and what we found was it wasn't forbidden really anymore, and most of the people sat around and chewed chat, which is mm. a narcotic, and uh, mm. means that most of the most of the population was spaced out. So mm. it, it was pretty sad actually, yeah. although colorful. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's a mm. that's a narcotic that is used really widely. Uh, in fact, it's probably Ethiopia's uh, first export, although they don't admit it. Mm. Um, but it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not violent like heroin, but it's just a slow deterioration in capacity. Mm. That's sad. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, I, um, I got an offer to, um, to join a project in, in Washington, D.C. to work out of, um, there were a number of schools involved, but I was to work out of a high school to help work and develop a new curriculum that would be um, in this, in social studies and English, uh, particularly. That would be based on the lives of the kids going to school, mm-hmm. rather than just a, the standard high school curriculum. Mm-hmm. And they were recruiting some return volunteers because they figured that after what we'd be through, we could do anything. You know, it was it was also in the Kennedy era when mm-hmm. things were. Uh, <sighs> There's still a kind of an optimism about how you could transform the inner city, and this was a part of it. Mm-hmm. So, accepted that and went to uh, went to Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an Ethiopia a teacher. Oh, there's something else. Before I got to Washington D.C., mm-hmm. I should I, I really want to mention. <laughs> um one of the one of the teachers who was assigned the second year I was there was an Ethiopian who had recently graduated from the university and was a very had a philosophical um, he, he loved long discussions and uh, about the state of the world and the state of Ethiopia and the state of mankind and after and we had a good time together and after a couple of times we we were having dinner together, and he, he told me that he had lived in Connecticut with a family that uh, he really loved. He said they were just wonderful, and uh, he said and, and they were something called Baha'is. And uh, he said, you would really be interested in these people. And he said, I have some of their books that they gave me. And he handed me a book called Gleanings from the Writings of Baha'u'llah and, uh, and uh, The Hidden Words. And I thought, oh, this looks interesting, you know, and... Uh so anyway, we had long and intense discussions about um about religion, about politics, about the state of the world, and basically lamented the fact that although one has to remember the sixties was a period of real optimism, mm. although we were out I mean the optimism only little reached us out where we were, but but it was it was uh, uh, and and these writings and the and the and the thoughts seemed to be revolutionary in their insistence on the notion that the world will get itself together when it achieves unity mm-hmm. and that really hit me out in Gori ilubabor who's saying this and the thing was that the writings were 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 clearly deep and and, and, and powerful but who, who how, you, you you needed to talk to somebody who could help you with them I was drawn to them uh, but uh, that's all I, did, I mean at that point and wondered
0: <laughs> mm, right,
1: right. Um later, of course, the the Baha'i faith in Ethiopia um became very rooted and very strong and uh has a has a wonderful, vibrant community today. Oh. Yeah. Um we have a um very active um active community of, of and, and, and of youth and people who are doing things in the country that are wonderful. So mm. that's that I learned that much later. But, um, I see. Yeah. Yeah, so... So you're back in Washington, D.C.? in Washington. Working in a school, which is uh, Cardozo High School, which named after a great judge, but was the pits. Mm. After Ethiopia, uh, it was really a shock, in a way. I mean, Gori Elubabor, Ethiopia, is very poor. People, it's from hand to mouth. There's a lot of sickness. But, you know, people look after each other. I mean... It's not, that poverty, maybe it reflects larger world context, but in D.C., the poverty clearly reflects the effect of racism without question. And that was so evident in the school, with the kids. By the way, this is about now, um, I'm talking about 66, Black Panthers, the, <laughs> mm-hmm. the work in the South, uh, Stokely Carmichael is nearby, Comes into my class, by the way. Oh, really? I, I mean, it was before he became Stokely. You know, <laughs> he was just—he was just really angry and hugely articulate. Um, so we're really aware of, of what's you know of, of 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 changes that are starting to take place. Um, I was teaching classes. Uh, we had a much reduced load. We only had two classes, and in the classes, we were expected to develop a curriculum that reflected. The realities out on the street and in the you know in in the world of the kids, so that it would become much more relevant to them. So the choices of the literature, the poetry, and the rest of it. I mean, we had to follow generally the idea that we're teaching literature and reading and writing, but mm-hmm. but we were left completely open. Um, and we had a fabulous team. Um, this is called the Cardozo Project. It, there was a team of about fourteen people. We had three master teachers, and the head of the project was a man named Larry Cuban, mm. who had come out of Cleveland as a really innovative social science teacher. Did a lot of work with simulations and role playing, and was just. And Larry went on after this project, by the way, to become superintendent in Arlington, then to become uh, finish a doctorate in history in Yale, and go on to become a professor at Stanford and and become a the head mm. of. Uh, AERA, the American Research Education, American Education Research is a a really a a major player and still is today, although Mm. he's now retired.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Fabulous guy. I mean, to watch a class by Larry, he just said, oh, that's the way you teach. Uh. He just was so energetic, but energetic in having the the students become engaged and energetic. And he Mm -hmm. constantly did... He, and he had he had kids in tenth grade who were hardly literate, looking at original documentation from the uh, uh, Bunker Hill, uh, uh, you know, the, the the first shot of the revolution, and mm-hmm. study and become, uh, you know, to to model the the, the life and times of Crispus Attucks and so mm-hmm. on. And I mean, and they did, mm-hmm. you know, and they really got into this and said, hey, this, you know. This is a street, you know, this is a street thing. And it kind of mm. was then. It was pretty rough. Uh, not not this kind of, you know, in this date, such and such happened. He was just hugely. So we had mentors and models and um, and were really encouraged to think outside the box. The other thing about this thing was that we, we constantly sat in and watched each other mm. and critiqued. We also spent a lot of time on the street. We... Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh with social workers uh, going to homes uh, we met all the we we went and and introduced and and talked with all the parents of our kids i mean
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, we um we went in squad cars trolls it was worked out so that it was part of an urban sociology or afro-american literature combined mm-hmm. uh, master's degree program at Howard and so we were getting some really good stuff mm-hmm. from that too so it was a it was a good program mm. um, in terms of getting engaged, and uh, it uh, it made us realize this school, Cardozo. Of well, the six hundred or so graduating seniors, one or two might get on to the university.
2: That was ridiculous.
1: Mm. I mean, this is just these. Uh, a friend of ours, Matt Rudstein,
0: wrote fact, a book with okay. a subtitle
1: called "Mental Genocide." And that book is a description of the uh of of what it's like for a um a male afro american adolescent in a in an inner city school mm. in most inner city schools in terms of the assault on their dignity <laughs> that sounds pretty odd yeah that's, but, but yeah, that that's true. are th- th- just the disregard. Of them as full human beings with agency, mm. uh, and in the class I walked into, the first class I walked into in tenth grade, eighty percent of those kids were functionally illiterate. It was uh, just outrageous, and, and and they were and they were angry as hell, although they couldn't show it in the school because the the school was a prison for them. They had to go. They got beaten all the time from their parents because they missed. It was just awful. Um, mm. and I, after after the Ethiopian experience, I, I just putting this into context, I had a, a, a teacher, um, and not, not the same teacher, another teacher who I had known in Ethiopia, an Ethiopian who came to Washington, D.C., and I invited him over to sit in on one of the classes. And at the end of the class, he just couldn't believe it. He said... I, He said that these kids, they don't want to be here. They hate this place. This is so different from Ethiopia. Uh, And it was true. I had had a fabulous experience in Ethiopia because the kids were so motivated. Mm -hmm. And here they were. It was like we were more jailers than teachers. And I, although we could do stuff with the curriculum, a bunch of us got together and said, we've got to do something else here. We, this isn't responsible just to say we're going to change the curriculum. So we started two programs, <laughs> more or less at the same time. And there we, we had support for this. Um, one was called New Careers for the Poor. I mean, that was the rubric under which we got funds, and it was uh, done with Howard University. And it was to uh, have kids who had dropped out by 10th or 11th grade offer them the equivalent of a high school diploma and training uh, to become, uh, to fit into new jobs. These were jobs that were being developed through health services, hospital, outpatient clinics, and so forth, and schools, teacher aides, those didn't exist then, with the idea that we needed cultural brokers, that we, they... The communities needed somebody they could trust to talk to about what was happening. Mm-hmm. It, it, the schools and the hospitals and the health services did a terrible job of communicating with the with the community. They were whitey were establishments. And so this was a program to have people who could talk both languages. Mm. Now, that wasn't very easy with dropouts because they had to agree that that was something that they wanted to do and to learn how to do it and that raised up a whole lot of issues that many of the problems kids were having in school weren't operational or functional but they were cultural or they were arising out of racism that if on the street you spoke like a white man (laughs) you you weren't you weren't going to survive long right and and so, But when you ha- came into school, you were being forced to do that. And so it had to do with issues of identity and meaning and, and, and my purpose in life and who am I and who, ha- who cares and who values me and who doesn't mm-hmm. and why. Mm-hmm. And the kids in this program had to sort those issues out. And so we did a lot of group work, <laughs> which wasn't a subject. It was working through these issues. Uh, And a a lot of time was spent on that, Mm. very interestingly. The program worked. Uh, Almost 35 kids uh, completed their high school diplomas and got into work in in these services. And later these services became a part of the establishment. Mm. Uh, So that was good. The other was a program called Upward Bound, which was just starting. And that was giving kids who, um, again, seemed to be performing much below their capacity, um, in in poverty situations, uh, a chance to go to university by having a uh, a program during the summer and during the year that gave them a different view of what the university might be. Mm-hmm. And so, I actually became the director of that okay. at the University of Maryland. Oh, okay. While I was also doing that, and and uh, we had 120 kids, but we had to have an integrated program, and. Cardozo didn't have anybody white at all <laughs> and so we had to go to southern Baltimore to find white kids <laughs> that was the closest and in southern Baltimore at southern high school about 40 percent of the kids were were from um, were white and mm. they were mostly from uh, migrants from Appalachia where mm. the mines had shut down mm. and boy they were that was a case because these these families were really dysfunctional i mean uh, a out of alcoholism and 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 abuse oh my gosh and we just the kids that we chose we had such respect for they looked like they were really problem kids but we had a lot of respect for them because they had survived and that program we decided there was no way we were going to start this program in classrooms this would be Mm. a terrible signal right so we we did something else. We <laughs> we thought we got together. We had a great team, and we mm. got together and decided we we're going to do a three-week survival mountain camping out in west. Uh, well, up in the very far reaches of western Maryland, up by West Virginia, and uh, it's going to be a survival camping. And that's what we did. And we we you know we said. To everyone, if you want to be in this, you've got to be ready to try to survive in an environment you've never experienced, because these kids had never been on a camping trip. They're not. Mm. There's no Boy Scouts in Cardoza. Right. Right. And uh, so we went off, and that was really interesting, very tough. I mean, we didn't know that we were going to make it, actually. Really? I mean, just because of the... You know, most adolescents, you think they know something about camping, but these guys... I mean, making a fire, except for arson, I mean, there was just, <laughs> you know. Uh, there were, and there were completely, it was a culture shock. Mm. We used an outward bound approach. But, mm-hmm. you know, people coming into outward bound have a lot of history usually behind them. And we just realized this is really tough. In fact, it was so tough that in the second week, uh, one of the things we did was a uh, we, we didn't do solo. You know, the outward bound program uh, has kids after about a month. They go for a three-day solo where they don't take anything with them and they go for a period of meditation and personal survival and coming to account with themselves, their spiritual realities and 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 God, if they believe in that. <laughs> we, we couldn't kind of replicate that. Uh, but what we did do was have groups of three people go out for a two-day and an overnight. And each person could carry one thing. Apart from the clothes they wore, that was it. So if they, if somebody forgot them, matches, unless they were really clever and nobody was, they wouldn't get a fire. <laughs> we had these, and on about, I was in a, about the fourth, oh, and we had a staff person as one of the three. I mean, we didn't want to be completely irresponsible here. And <laughs> we, um, uh, so the group I was on, um, the three of us uh, set off, and um that night was the worst storm oh, boy. in the history of Western Maryland. Oh boy. With thunder and lightning. It was just amazing. I I didn't think we were gonna survive. We had we had hiked about six hours off. And we were on a mountainside. And at this point I didn't there was lightning fall you know and, and all around us. Um, also <laughs> I had I had, had a scratch in my leg down by my ankle, and we had, uh, the earlier week, had gone to swim in the Chesapeake, and that night, for one reason or another, I felt this thing starting to give me some pain, like it was getting infected, and it seemed to be getting worse through oh, okay. the night, but I thought this was, it couldn't be. Hmm. One of the group had a flashlight, and when they flashed leg swollen, and there was a, a lump in a a line going up my lane, and my lane was looking discolored. Oh, boy. And that was like at about 8 o'clock. And about 11 o'clock, it had gone almost up to my knee, and it was clear this was not... This was really... Whatever it was, was really bad. It was it's kind of like... Uh, an organism had gotten in there and was burrowing north, and, and I couldn't I couldn't stand quite properly. And it was, so we were really, we were freaked out, actually. I can imagine. And the kids, the other two kids, got under each of my arms and got me. We walked out, uh, getting back to camp around dawn later. And by then, my leg was really discolored, and they had to take me to the emergency room. And I had a streptococcus infection, which... The hospital put me immediately in intensive care, uh, and nobody could get in or out of that room unless they were totally covered in plastic. And oh, wow. The kids had saved me. I mean this was a deal yeah uh, i there was no act of leadership that would have been more effective, I think than this mm. um being totally helpless and being rescued by the kids yeah uh, talk about agency did that like transform the kids? The kids came back from camping. I got back out to the camp before it was finally closed down with crutches and all and i I slowly recovered out of the hundred and twenty kids who were on that program um just over a hundred went into some form of post-secondary education, and mm. o- about 80 went on to full universities. Mm, and good. we kept track of them over the years, and one of them became the president of the University of Maryland. Really? Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. a young woman. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty so good. So, I mean, and what a – this was 120 kids. Over a hundred went on to tertiary education, whereas two out of 600 – in Cardozo, when. and it's not because we were brilliant, we just cared about the kids, right. and we cared about each other, and wanted to give them an opportunity. And And it shows, and this still is true. Mm-hmm. I mean, one thought that there were a lot of things that schools might have been able to do, mm-hmm. but they haven't. The right. Inner city schools are not that much different today, mm-hmm. and that's just a reflection of our society, uh, it's not a reflection of what we could do. But what we have chosen to do. Chosen not to do. Chosen not to do. Yeah. yeah I, I think everybody ought to be absolutely clear that this is a social decision. It's not a mm. it, it's not a question of that the, the communities are intractable or that the kids can't learn. That's all mm. bull. Mm. They can and they do and so on. Mm. Yeah.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ash Hartwell, a Baha'i from Amherst, Massachusetts, who has traveled to many parts of the world as a consultant on education. We have more stories to come from Ash for future segments. If you want information on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number one 800 two two unite I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.